Hello everyone and welcome back to the BMW Blog Podcast. Today we have a very special guest for you, one that needs no introduction. Chris Bangle, former BMW designer, automotive designer, and he currently has his own design firm, Chris Bangle Associates. He led BMW's design team for many years and helped develop some of the brand's most iconic and famous designs, so we're incredibly excited to talk to him today. Hi Chris, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm fine. How are you guys? Good, Thanks. how are things in Italy? Well, today's a beautiful day, um, and uh, we're kind of, I won't say coming out of the COVID issues, but we're at least uh, able to have some sort of life as normal here, and that's a good sign, uh, so I like that. And Italy is anyway wonderful. What do you want, you know? Yeah, exactly, especially you're near, uh, Tor- near uh, Torino, right? Yes, uh, the, we live about, oh, let's say about an hour south of Torino. So so, the it's in the it's hills cool. of the, it's it's called Clavizana, and it is in the hills nice. of the Langa. The Langa area is where uh, really wonderful wine comes from. So uh, many many of your listeners might know us from the wines like uh, Barolo or Barbaresco, Dolcetto. These are all wines from the Langa. Oh, nice! So Very cool. Really yeah, because nice I <laughs> remember your uh, your your we're, go- we're going into Tartuffi season too. Truffles, right? Tartuffi season oh, is yeah. happening now too. Okay. So really, yeah. in in these days, they're they're starting the Vendemia. That's when they uh, pick the grapes. So it's we're right at the wonderful time of the year. Oh, nice. Good to hear. All right. So then we don't want to keep you too long, Ben, <laughs> yeah. from all, from all that uh, right. from all that work. So, uh, <laughs> not me picking them. No, it's okay. <laughs> All right, so I want right. to just jump in real quick, and um, the first question I want to ask is about um, like autonomous driving and how that is going to influence design both inside and outside moving forward. In that. Well, okay, there's some very interesting sides to this question, and uh, most of the question of, uh, of autonomous driving is going to be decided by the legislative context you know what is allowed what is not allowed rather than what is physically possible and that's you know usually the case with cars what's physically possible is is a long ways away from what is legally correct or what we're what the industry is being asked to do and there's still a lot of questions open on the autonomous car thing um the technology should support uh, a broader range of use than what's actually being allowed but because there are some scenarios in which uh, makes people nervous uh, they dial back what's being allowed, right? Uh, so yeah. far, uh, you're following that, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So as long as the context is so dialed back that it's just some sort of like advanced driver assistance, you're not going to see a whole lot of changes. People still got to sit the same way in a car. They still got to have the stuff wrapped around them from the safety net as they always have. So bleh, what's, what's really going to change? You know, okay, the steering wheel flops away and gets out of your way. Maybe. But uh, if the rule is you have to instantaneously be able to take over driving, then I kind of don't see that happening either. And right now, it's like every 10 seconds, you, you get an electric shock if you don't have your eyes on the road. So, I mean, yeah. you tell me what's going to change. I don't know, something, I guess. If, on the other hand, the technology convinces people and the context is such that they decide, hey, you know what, we can actually trust the cars to do these things, then that may change the environments a little bit. Uh, we we did a car, as you know, called uh, 9010, uh, Reds, uh, based on the concept of 9010, which for that car had a very specific meaning, which meant that 90% of the life of the vehicle, it is not moving. The 10% of its life, it is moving. 
So let's do something that, uh, you know, really exploits this 90% that cars don't seem to be designed for. So we made a vehicle where you can flip the steering wheel out of the way and rotate the front seat around when it's parked with the, with the door shut, even though it's a very tiny car. It's, it's about the size of a smart two-seater, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that is something that is possible today, but only in a parked condition. If you wanted to do that while the car was actually driving, let's say you're stop and go traffic or something like that, let the car take over the stop and go. I want to flip this, the chair around and talk to a person in the back seat. Right now, the legislative environment doesn't allow that. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, no, it definitely helps. I mean, I was also thinking about more of the exterior design as well, where you have all these LiDAR sensors and, and I mean, there are multiple sensors. So um, about sensors and things like this that go with ADAS, you know, driver assistant systems, et cetera. Um, a lot of the changes you've seen in the front of cars in the last couple of years is not just because the designers wanted to jam a bigger harmonica in the mouth of the baby to see how you know grinning it can look or how amazing it can look at a distance. It's also because they had to figure out ways to put huge chunks of black plastic in front of you that hide all sorts of sensors, right? So you can't even have holes anymore because the holes are being filled up with stuff like cameras and radar sensors and things. And so some... Uh, grills that on cars used to have nice div divisions in the middle that split them in half. Well, right in the middle, that's where you have to put a, a camera. Now what do we do? So many of the changes that the designers are being, uh, let's say, shunted towards are there to actually mask all these uh, sensors. And then, you know, there's the issue, are they body color or not on the sides of the cars? Or do we suddenly have all these, you know, scars that appear all over the sheet metal? Because the sensor has to be oriented in a Cartesian manner. It can't be tilted along with the surface. So you have a little, you know, coin-sized piece of your car, which has to be flat relative to the world. Yeah, all kinds of things like that. Let's say they're cosmetic issues. They're not the things that are driving car design. They're just cosmetic issues. But they didn't make life any easier, that's for sure. Yeah. Okay, so if, if we were to step back just a little bit, because maybe, um, maybe we should have started with that. What do you feel like it's the state of the automotive uh, industry today? Uh, I mean, some of the trends that you see, the influences, and clearly autonomous driving and, electri and electrification, it's, uh, there are two of them. Uh, well, there's a, a number of issues happening uh, in the industry which have combined to uh, bring it into a kind of a condition of a perfect storm. You know, this is the external issues, all sorts of things like... Um, uh, you know, the economy problems, COVID now, um, but even before that, you know, issues of, of insecurity of the customers and, and in general, a loss of fascination of our product relative to other things which tie into the, the zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the times. The automobile back in the 60s was the representation of the spirit of the times. That's why a 65 Mustang is, is still so iconic in our minds because at the time it represented an entire decade almost. And now the car is, you know, a long ways away from what social media and things like that or a yeah. cell phone has to do with what represents the spirit of our times. And because of that, the huge amounts of money that go with the zeitgeist have not been available for the auto industry besides the fact that they're, they're bleeding uh, uh, licenses at the lower end. You know, less people are getting driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. um, at the top end, where all the money is going, it's just not going to them. So the margins are always thinner. They have to fight it out with the suppliers even more. Etc. Etc. And that drives an atmosphere of, let's say, reluctance to change, reluctance to risk. They, the whole industry just tends to rely on what it's done before. The minimum 
change possible, and definitely only enough to cover what's being required of them for the future. So, you know, if the future says I have to put these sensors on, you have to do it. If the future says you have to hit these crash standards, you have to do it. But I don't see a lot of research into there and what what they what they really want to do or what they could do. All right, to be quite honest, the second phenomenon about this is that um, probably the driving force behind let's say the automobile as something which touched our minds and hearts simultaneously mm -hmm. that means the emotional link that it had to a, a greater public has been in a certain sense hijacked over the last decades by an ever more vocal group of performance enthusiasts who quite rightly in their own interest think that the coolest thing about cars is how fast they can they can go, etc. But in doing so, they've forced the, the car companies to only attend to that one side of the message of the automobile. So the whole idea of what is emotion in a car has been fairly narrowed to only about that set of messages. Okay, it's gotcha. performance. And that, that means, on the one hand, you don't have the resources to experiment, to try new things, to move an industry forward because you know, you're, you're not in line with where the times are. And on the other end, you're being asked to basically cover up an enormous amount of social issues with uh, your own product, you know, like uh, pollution issues and jobs and you know, things like that, safety, et cetera. And on the other side of it, your own culture is, is kind of forcing you down this one path that says it's all about performance. That's it. That's the only thing we can measure, you know, like electric cars, right? Yeah. What's their whole message to you? It used to be clean, and now it's acceleration. Yeah, right? that's all. That's all they do. Well, you know, I mean, if you got a car that goes from zero to sixty in two seconds, that's really cool. But I mean, you're never going to take your wife in that twice in a row, right? <laughs> you know, that that may be the reason you why you really like the car. Nobody else is around. But if you have passengers in the car, the emotional experience that they've got from it has got to be a different one. Yeah, it's true. All right. So if you ask me, the state of the industry today, the state of the industry is. Oh, Okay, problems. There are always problems. I mean, that's, that, nobody should complain about that. And there are always challenges. There are always challenges. But right. unless the industry gets its mindset first set on a future which is, let's say, a positive one for a new uh, experience of the automobile, then we're going to have a lot of problems. And I'm saying this as a designer, okay? I'm just speaking purely yeah. as a designer here. Does it make sense to you? Yeah, it makes sense. And, and you mentioned electrification. Um... So how, how do you see an electric car of the future? Like, how would you design it? Well, we did one for uh, a city, right? Reds. And why did we yeah. do it the way we did? Because it's an only an urban vehicle, has a 120 speed tops. So why do we need to do aerodynamics on this car, which is something for, I don't know, the straightaway of Le Mans? I mean, one of the things I find almost hilarious is when you see a vehicle like like the rental vehicles in some big cities they're only for inside the city and they're designed with the same type of aerodynamic uh, thought process that you would do in a vehicle that's going to go you know down the autobahn between cities okay it's nice it's going to save a few kilometers on the top end but look at all the wasted space and the wasted use of material and and potential that you're you're giving away because you're slave to this one mentality. So on Reds, we said, let's turn this around the other way. Let's do a car that drives fine, and it does drive fine. We've got over a thousand kilometers on the, on the prototype. A car that does great mileage, and it does do great mileage, but it doesn't do it because of the aerodynamics. 
It does it because it's very lightweight and it does it because it's in an urban environment where it doesn't have to go fast. And then we could do things like, well, let's make a really long roof on it, which we did, even though the car is about a piece of paper longer than a smart two-seater, its roof is longer than the roof on an I-3. An I-3 is over a meter longer than this car. Okay, what does a really long roof mean? It means the whole interior of the car is in shadow. Okay, the sun load, the heat load on the car is massively less than it would be on a normal car with, you know, tilted, tilted windshields. And what does that mean? You don't have to run the air conditioners all the time car. And what does that mean? The battery life is long. And what does that mean? You can go further. You get the idea? Yeah. So, yes. you know, you have to be very, very aware of the context for which you're, you're, you're designing and hopefully don't get dragged into a, a, a paradigm of, of a certain set of tropes that cars have always been done like this. So we always have to do them like that. And we're just going to take out one motor and put it in a different Yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting you actually say that because you mentioned the i3. I've been driving one for the last six years, and um, it's it's not perceived as a good-looking car, but I found it to be very functional and and well designed. Um, and but many times, you know, I do see BMW customers and even you know fans. They say, "Well, I kind of wish the i3 looked more like a Tesla Model Three or Tesla Model S." something that's more visually appealing versus, you know, the city car, this urban car that was designed for. Okay. So I guess... I didn't, I didn't hear think, a question mark on the end yeah, of that. Yeah, so I was thinking about the question <laughs> right now. So do you think that the, that the i3 was a smart design? Okay, the i3 isn't uh, the way I left that project. And so okay. um, it took a turn after I left. Fine. Gotcha. That's what the car they wanted to do. Um Maybe you could say uh, for that segment, the type of message they wanted to do is a very particular one. And there's another set of messages they could have picked from. Personally, I don't think uh, saying the message we want to give across is we're uh, a boxed down version of a Model S is the right way to go. Uh, this doesn't make some sense to me. On the other hand, uh, all cars, and I'm not just putting the i3 on here, but all cars uh, need to assess themselves from the point of view of character. I mean, if you, if, you, if you want to get down to the success of the Mini, the Mini became iconic because it did one thing that nobody else had ever done. What did it do? It established yeah. the fact that you could sell a small car for a lot of money. Yeah. Nobody else had ever been able to do that, right? Why? It doesn't happen because, today, though. <laughs> okay. Why, did, why was it able to do that? Not because they took a small car and put Alcantara trim in it, and suddenly it's got an expensive package, and therefore it's worth more money. No, that's what people had done before. I mean, look at the Lancia uh, Y10s back in the 80s. They were daring desperately to try and figure out how that vehicle would be worth more money if we could upgrade the interiors, etc. And suddenly the Mini comes along and sells itself for a premium price as a premium vehicle. Why? Because it's full of character. It's massively full of character, right? And character and personality is everything to people. So, if, you know, okay, if, if not, you're just going to buy a car that's cheap. Okay, you buy a cheaper car. Who cares about the character? But if you want a car that talks to you and says, this is me, and you know what? I'm going to put out some extra money because of that. Well, it damn well better have personality. And so you should ask yourself on any vehicle, you know, is this really the personality that's being sold? It's a, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the Mini because I recently drove a classic Mini, and one of the things that really stood out to me was just how intelligently designed it was like packaging wise like it just seemed like everything was designed to you know have as much space on the interior as possible in such a small car and i remember thinking like wow like what an amazing car this must have been groundbreaking 
you know, back in its its day. And it, it really gave, you're right, it gave the car a ton of character. And I really enjoyed like every aspect of it because of that. Uh, let's be clear. I was referring to the Mini that we launched. Okay. <laughs> okay I'm sorry. But anyway, right. I did feel yeah, that because, way. No, 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 no. Let's be really clear about that. I was that was uh, launched by BMW because the original Mini was not a small car for a lot of money. Okay, let's let's be really clear about that. Yeah. Right, right. That was right. not That's its true. purpose. But the Mini that was launched by BMW was a premium product. All right, and that had never right. been done before. That's the point I was making. The original Mini, that. as you say, uh, nothing taking nothing away from what you said about the original Mini. The original Mini is a fantastic car, and one of the reasons why it feels so fantastic to us today is it was not designed for us. Okay, us as human beings, we are a different race of of, of animal than was around in the 50s when that car was done. We're much bigger. Just physically, yeah. we are much bigger. You know, I mean, in the 50s, people on average were, I don't know, maybe two centimeters away, if, if not more. And so when you get in that car today, you go, oh, this is so just gorgeously, wonderfully tailored for me. And then you think, you don't think twice about the fact that there's absolutely zero crash protection, <laughs> right? I mean, you're not even thinking about that, right? So, I mean, getting into one of those old minis today is truly a special experience. And just because you're getting into something designed for somebody else. Yeah. Right. So to follow up on that, Chris, basically, so you mentioned the mini being successful back in the day. And why is that car not selling today then? Do you think customers are just more inclined to go towards, you know, crossovers and SUVs? Oh, you mean the current mini? The current mini, yes. Well, I will confess to you, I'm not up on sales numbers. So yeah, I will so they're they're very that. they're very very low. They're actually they're they're struggling a little bit to to sell any mini. I think the probably the Countryman the the crossover is the one that sells the most. But the uh, the the classic hatchback two door three door, uh, they're they're just not selling well. Well, um, without going and, back and doing fact checking on you, I'll just kind of assume this to be true. Uh, you have to remember that that we're in a changing time now of what people consider appropriate for themselves as what reflects their character. And uh, probably the SUV approach has become so dominant in people's minds. You know, if they don't sit up higher, they won't, they don't feel like they, they deserve to be on the road. Right. Uh, this is, this is something that uh, Tesla negates very well because their cars are very low in general. Uh, but it was something we exploited in our reds. You know, it's a small car, but you sit the same ride height as the X6, you know, you're, eyeballs at the same height is in a, a bmw x6 so on the mini mini also branched out into an enormous wide product range and so it would be interesting to to see the internal discussion on that if well suppose we limited it to just a very few models if we would have lesser or more customer base you know i don't know yeah true I mean, there's a lot of options out there for a mini. You can get it in this shape and this shape and this and this and this. And at a certain point, if the total market share doesn't change that much, you're just slicing it up into ever thinner slices. Yeah, it's true. Right. So that makes sense. All right, so let's shift away from that. I'm going to ask you a little bit about the, um, you know, your BMW design career and what kind of effect had on your, you know, career after you left BMW. Well. Uh, I mean, obviously, because uh, you've been I there left, for a long time. Uh, yeah, it's kind of there. Yeah, kind of seventeen years, something. Seventeen. You have a huge amount of. You have an enormous hole in your in your soul because of all the people you've left behind. And I think the, the most wonderful experience of BMW is the people. Uh, it's a 
Agreed, yeah. In my day, it was a fantastic people, uh, both above me and, and, and people that worked for me uh, and my colleagues at the same level. I, I must say, uh, I was blessed to have been there for almost two decades and uh, have a team which was just you know, second to none. And that's a lot of love. That's a huge amount of emotional connection you have to people. They may not know it, that you feel that way about them or you tried to tell them, mm-hmm. but I think they know. And they certainly expressed their emotions to me a lot. So I, I, I think we, we both felt a, a loss uh, by the separation that, that happens when you decide to go on and make a new life for yourself. Uh, but it, it's something you had to do. So yeah. that, that gap, you know, you kind of, you want to fill with a new family. And that's what I did here. I, I found a new family that I have collaborators I work with and also a community. I, I will confess that when I was at BMW, I was not very involved in the community, uh, you know, around me where I lived because I just went back and forth to work all the time. But here, I live in such a small town. There's 900 people in this town right? <laughs> that, you know, we kind of, we're kind of like the biggest employer around. It's not true. Not, but yeah. you know we're, we're we are one of the industry here let's put it that way yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're 10 people right we're part of the industry here and so you get involved with the, the mayor and the, the civic people of this and things like that and suddenly your life gets very um colorful and uh, and rich and yeah. uh the personal lives of your people because you're with a team that's you know uh one sixtieth of the size you were working with before it becomes very intimate and everybody is like serious, serious family. And I really like that a lot. And so um, what I took away from BMW was this love of people. And I'm very happy I, I found it here as well. Uh, in terms of professional stuff, like you might be asking mm-hmm. that question, like what did you learn professionally? Right? Professionally, BMW is an incredible teaching uh, institution. You learn about management, you learn about uh, design management, and you learn management trying to manage design and trying to manage design management in probably one of the greatest uh, universities that you've been able to, to work. And these are things that I've taken with me and been able to help other companies trying to understand their work better if I can help them see it a bit through my experiences. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that's a nice thing. But yeah. on the third hand, I came away with a huge curiosity concept of car design. You know, it's when that when you're in the middle of it and you're running a team and you're doing your very best to make um, the daily work come up. It's another thing when you step back a bit from that and you say, hang on a sec, the culture of car design, what is it? What is it we're trying to do? You know, where can we go? Where's the potential? Why aren't we doing some things we could be doing? And that, I think, was a, a freedom to even ask those questions that I felt let's say, much better at addressing once, once that I came to Italy. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. So speaking of projects that you wanted to do and you weren't able to do at BMW, is there something that comes into mind that you can talk about? I mean, I'm clearly hinting at a uh, BMW supercar also. That's one thing that I keep hearing all the time. You know, I, you, know you get into this thing about supercars. I was thinking about this stuff. And I mean, to me, the Gina was a supercar. Because mm-hmm. it's a car where people, today I meet them, and can you believe this? I meet people like architects, and they say, I remember where I was when I saw that Gina film the first time. Okay, it's that's, that's usually a comment that is reserved for you know, horrific events like when 9-11 happened, I remember it was, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. stuff that really burns into your memory cells. And people remember Gina like that. 
Well, I'm sorry. I don't know. You know, when the last Maserati came out or the last the McLaren came out, if anybody's telling you, I remember where I was when I first saw it. Boo. Yeah. I don't know. you got to be a serious petrol head to be at that level. And maybe one of the things that I'm a little bit uh, disgruntled about is the fact that uh, the supercar uh, world became so absolutely jejun. I mean, it's, sorry, it's just boring. Sorry, but it is, yeah. okay? There's nothing about these cars that, that relates to the world we're in today, to me, okay? They're still trying to do the same sort of thing all over again. And there's definitely nothing about them that makes you go, wow, unless, you know, you're absolutely linked into that type of a vehicle and you have to say, wow, all over again, because, oh, the chrome pipes a different way, and okay, that's very nice. There's, you know, they're supposed to be so politically incorrect that when you drive one, it, it, you know, the police don't, pull you over for for speed they pull you over for violating some sort of obscenity rules you know right. that's the whole idea behind these things when the kutach came out come on i mean that guy was like it was so shocking it's just, it's just like a porn film in the middle of the road right <laughs> i mean that is one brilliant design in in those terms super right. super uh emotionally uh, shock effect right and now it's like oh yeah well we have the wing on the back we got two scoops in the front. Okay. You want two scoops with that? Okay, you got it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely oh, I'm sorry. On the supercar issue, you got to really work hard to get me to stand up. I mean, to cross the street to see one. Now, if you were going to say, you know, should BMW do a supercar or something like that? If you guys want one, they can do one. I mean, I'm sure they can. How about the i8? You know, we'll just take that and revamp it a few times. And, you know, and it'll be, quote, yeah. unquote, a supercar. No, I feel like the people only mentioned the uh, uh, BMW supercar back to the M1 because they feel like the Audi R8 has done a great job for the brand as far as, you know, the image and all of that. And I think that's what kind of people want from BMW. And the i8 truly is a supercar in a different sense. But I guess when people mention supercars today, they talk about, you know, lounge engines and V12s and all of that, V10. So I think that's why that topic keeps coming back. We're actually not... Fans of a BMW supercar like like a new one, we kind of like the direction the i8 went. Even though could it be a little bit sportier as far as the, the drivetrain, but it, it's just something that always comes up. And I've always heard stories from the design team that there were several you know uh, design studies done uh, of a supercar, but there was never an approval from the board to actually push it forward. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we had some on the on the table when I was there as well. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> but you know the thing about the i8, which uh, you know I was. I think the last year I was there is when the M1 concept car came out. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but you know, this was basically uh, Adrian was doing uh, that project with his team. But the, the thing about the car is it, it speaks volumes for BMW's rational side. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you actually look at that car, despite, you know, the unusual door and, you know, everything else like this, it might have. It's a really rational car. You, know, you can actually drive it, and it drives really damn well. And you can drive it down, uh, you know, uh, the normal roads in Munich, and it won't fall into a hole, right? Yeah. You won't, you won't lose the bottom of it on something, right? Because BMW is at its heart an engineering company, and its engineers are rational engineers. They want to do the right thing. At least the whole time I was there, that that, that was their mind to do the right thing. So, you know, when they did uh, an SUV for the first time. They didn't do an SUV just to get you up higher. They said, what is the best way to get on any road at any time? And that means we need four-wheel drive all the time. And that means we need blah, blah, blah. You know, 
the, the, the litany of why they got to where an X5 was, was an entire road paved with, with, with rational arguments. It was not, well, let's just do something because we think the market's going to go. Through. No, they said, technically, if you want to do this right, this is how you have to do it. Okay? So when it comes to doing a sports vehicle like the I-8, to me, it's no wonder the I-8 came out the way it is because it's being driven by extremely rational people. Now, how do you do a supercar? You don't be rational. Okay? <laughs> Sorry, that's the whole point, right? You, yeah, right? you would have to take the I-8 and split it down the middle and put another 300 millimeters of car in between there to get it out to the right width. Yeah. yeah. Which is totally irrational. Makes no sense. Doesn't make the car drive any better. But it'll look it'll look a lot more bizarre, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then and then you widen the tires to make up the difference, right? Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So the mental process for a supercar to me is not embedded in the heart and soul of the company. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And we, we just had a conversation on that with with another journalist. He was saying that the soul of the company is really something like the BMW 2002. That's the car that defines BMW more than a supercar. Yeah. I mean, they, BMW is, I mean, I have to give the company a lot of credit. They're one of the few companies that can claim as many iconic vehicles the one, uh, that they have. And when you understand the definition of an iconic vehicle, it means not just you recognize it. It means, among other things, it's the car everybody else wants to be. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they manage this with a mini, they manage it with a series, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing about iconic vehicles under their definition is it's the first to solve the problem. Okay. Yeah. So the three series is so iconic because it was the first car to solve a sports sedan. The mini, the issue I just told you, right? The M, the M3 was the reference car for so long because right. it was the first one to, to show how you could take a sports sedan and turn it into a track car track mm -hmm. potential car right so yeah. i mean if you're if you're asking for the company to give you fantastic products ask them for products that solve the problem now what's the problem of a super car? if you can tell them what that is they will give you one yeah makes sense so yeah just go ahead oh, sorry. <laughs> i like this you guys say makes sense i don't know any of this but i'm glad it does because we, i I have a similar view on the supercar because I've I was fortunate to have a lot of conversation with the BMW design team uh, in in the last ten years. Uh, I mean, from from all the way to the top, you know, uh, and then lower, and it was kind of the same thing that I've heard from uh, from them too. So that's why it makes sense what you say also. Yeah, I mean, I I think you have to see that there's a, a many. I don't want to single out BMW like this, but. Many companies have designers in them who really want to do the future of the automobile. Mm -hmm. But many other companies, but many companies, including BMW, but many companies have a large amount of their design teams that just want to do their version of what everybody else has done. Yeah. Okay. You know, just the same, but a little bit different. Hmm. And that unfortunately is, is becoming more dominant theme in car design. Just the same, but a little bit different. And you're going, come on. Yeah, there was a Maserati that just came out, a supercar that's kind of kind of follows that philosophy. But, I, think, I mean, I, I haven't yeah. really seen the car, and it's going to use, which is until I see it in real life, I really can't come. Yeah. <laughs> I can ask you something also, Chris. So basically, um, I can go back a little bit to your designs at BMW, which at the time they were somewhat controversial. And and we see a shift today in 2020 where basically people say, 
Well, yeah, that E60 actually was a pretty cool car. It was avant-garde. It was, you know, futuristic. And if you look at the car today, it still looks fresh. So my question is, when you designed that car, what did you really have in mind? What was the goal to kind of depart a little bit from the BMW design? Uh, give a lot of credit to the designer on that, David Arkin, the Italian, okay. young Italian who designed the car, yeah. who unfortunately passed away just as it was being approved. Um, which is a real loss to the car design because he was very talented and very young and had already had a, a, some nice uh, cars that he had already penned and he had lots more in him. So it was very sad that, that we lost yeah. him during that project. Uh, but the, Dabia's approach to the project was, I think, very unique, uh, which was uh, how do we deal with the fact that we're being asked to make a huge amount mass on top of wheels which are the same size as they were before yeah okay so the previous approach had always been bigger wheels bigger wheels bigger wheels and now we're at something where the engine guys are saying it's up by four or five centimeters and leave the wheels and tires the way they are okay so his his idea behind it was we really play up the idea of negative surfaces which had been up until that time considered a taboo, uh, and use the negative surfaces instead of lines to give you a different idea of what the vehicle is. And I remember when it was launched, some people told me it looked like a DTM car, you know, which at the time had these skirts set really mm -hmm. low and had this tendency to, to flare at the bottom. Yes. So the, the car had this like race car feel about it with the DTM skirts. Uh, effect uh, when it was launched and this body side with this enormous uh, concave uh, side section which we call the spoon design because it was literally like a spoon you know when you see a reflection in a spoon very rarely would you see a reflection that powerful on the side of a car in a negative surface so mm -hmm. things like that was his approach at taking this huge amount of visual weight out of the car that we were being asked to put into it because of these package changes this car after that, um, they increased the wheels and they reduced all those package elements. But somehow, the one that really sticks in your mind is Davides, the E60, right? Yeah. And I think it's because he was forced to come up with a new philosophy for dealing with the, those visual weights. And then, okay, for the good or the bad, I, you know, you can't comment on it. faith is what it was. But when a designer is lost at that stage in the project, you know, the car has been immediately approved and now suddenly the designer passes away. It can be, and it was in that case, that everybody on the team felt extremely dedicated to his memory. And that meant don't change anything. Now this is, this is very unusual in the car development process because usually what happens is the car is approved and then the, everybody does everything they can to change, right? Because you know it didn't match a package here, or cost too much for that, or... Yeah design director wanted to put his finger in it and change, you know, all these reasons, right? Yeah. But here we were given a case where literally within days of when the cars approved, lost the creative genius behind it. And everybody, every engineer felt dedicated to the memory of David to keep it the way it was. So in a certain sense, the car, maybe what you're seeing is one of the few cars that remained pure to the intent. Gotcha. Really it's a story. That's a story I never told anybody. And I hope I did it with respect. I intended to. Yeah, no, it sounds like a really, 
I mean, a cool thing to do, especially to pay respect to the designer. And I didn't know the story either, honestly, it's the first time. Yes, he was, he was truly, truly a boss um, because what a great designer. A young guy, creative yeah. genius. Yeah, anyway. Good for him. I mean, Curry's, I mean, honestly, still, still like the car today. Every time that I say it, it still looks... Many people, many people write me emails about the E60. Oh, they do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's get emails about that. Right? It, just stand, it stands out, right? I mean, it's not, it's just, just unique, basically, within the BMW portfolio in, in the last 20, 30 years. Right. And it's right. definitely, it's definitely getting a, uh, it's definitely having a much bigger comeback um, than maybe it was, it's definitely being appreciated much more now than I think it was then. I think it was definitely a very forward thinking design. At least that's what a lot of, um, you know, other journalists and, and, you know, car enthusiasts are are saying you know that you know it looks better oh, good. now than it did then so uh, oh, that's good so who changed us or the car yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, um, so that kind of leads us into the in, into the more uh you know newer topics basically so what's what's your thought on the new bmw designs i mean now that we've talked about the past a little bit what do you think about the new design approach well, you know, my policy is not to comment on BMW designs in that sense. So I, I, I'm always very reserved this because it's so easy to be misinterpreted. You know, yeah. a few years ago, I was at uh, the Frankfurt Car Show, mm -hmm. and I was really taken aback by um, the show stand of one of the competitors uh, who shall remain nameless mm -hmm. uh, to BMW because it had not a single thing new on it and i was just shocked by the amount of let's say uh leeway that people were giving them and not calling it out and say look you guys haven't done a single thing new and i told this to a journalist that i was shocked by the fact that i was just on a stand where there was nothing new and of course they wrote it up as if i was on the bmw yeah and that, and that pissed off everybody so i don't want to and That's it was fine. of course not, not my intention right i was talking about somebody else sure so um I, I want to be a little bit careful about this because I respect the team there and I know the amount of work that goes in there, like everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, but because I'm linked to them, let's say emotionally so strongly, it's, it's almost unfair for, for my comments because they can easily as well, you know, here's the old lion saying the way he would have yeah. done it if he'd still stuck around. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. I have some things I have to get used to. Okay. Quite fair. Um, I got used to some things faster than I, uh, other things I'm not so used to. Um, okay. I still tell them to go back and, and try and be a little bit courageous. That's mm -hmm. it's my, my main goal, courageous with things. Yeah. And okay, the rest of it will come yeah. to deal with. I'm still trying to decide if I'm going to buy an X6 to be my next car. <laughs> so it's actually yeah. a good looking car. I actually know the designer that did the car, Hussein, very, very talented. Very talented. Well, guy. you know, this is the thing. All car companies have talent. You know, it's yeah. not just BMW. They've all got immense amount of design talent. And probably the re relationship between design talent and management courage has probably never been at such a gap. It's a huge gap. Yeah. It's a huge, huge gap. And I don't mean, I, again, I'm saying this at all companies. This is, the, this is the enormous gap between what designers could do and want to do and what they're allowed to do. And unfortunately, if it was true for all designers, you could make a real case of it. But as I said before, there's enough designers out there who are just happy to get the same thing. But... So, yeah. so let me ask you the question in a different way. Let's touch on the uh, 
on the premium segment then? Because we don't see just this with BMW. I see design being courageous, like you mentioned, and a little bit kind of like bold and controversial. And we see across multiple premium brands. And there is this uh, uh, thought that maybe it's being influenced by some markets, like the Chinese market. Um, so if you were to comment on just the overall, like, do you feel this is the right direction where most of the companies are going with really large kidney grills and they're going with, you know, very bold and, and, and luxurious design? Is that the right approach? Um, okay, I don't really think the designs are bold and luxurious. That's your opinion. Okay. I'm not going to debate the big kidney grills or, or the big grills wrong. As I said before, that's being driven by some technical factors as well. You know, you got to fit all those sensors in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely think the, the type of thoughtfulness and, uh, and let's just call it courage that the interior designers and in all has been, have been showing last couple of generations of cars has not been matched by the same that's set of changes on the exteriors. Okay. And I, you know, I will, I will tell you something about this. I think there's a, there's a subtle subtext reason for that. Okay. And one of the subtle subtext reasons is the interior designers have their own trade magazine. Okay. And the exterior designers do not. Exterior design does no longer a trade magazine really dedicated to it like it used to do back in the old days. Okay. They've been too diluted by too many other issues coming into Whereas the interior designers um, with uh, Interior Motives magazine, I'm going to say it by name, that magazine alone, I think, has done more to raise the bar of interior by focusing just on that and making the designers understand that it's really, really being presented and being understood at a high level in it. And I, I'm missing that on exterior design. Exterior design is missing a trade magazine. It's interesting. Yeah. Very um, interesting. Okay. Uh, I was kind of, I kind of want to go back a little, just a little bit, um, if you don't mind. There was a car you brought up that I'm, I've always been fascinated with, and I'd love to just hear you kind of uh, break it down a little bit. And that was the, the the Gina. I think it's just one of the coolest, most interesting cars BMW, uh, and you know, I've ever seen actually, because it had you know, morphing body panels, sort of, so to speak. You know, and, and can you just uh, kind of break down like the thought process behind that, and like what was the, you know, what was the uh, inspiration to do such an interesting car? Uh, you know the story behind it, right? Uh, I know it a little bit too. Okay, okay. Well, I, I just give you a quick, you know, fifteen second. Um, in in those days, uh, the design team had uh, budget for research, which I'm not sure if they do anymore. But in those days, we did. Okay. And if you, as a design director, tell everybody your budget, that's not helping. You have to let them figure things out. And one of the design groups on, uh, that uh, BMW had in them is called Design Works. They work third party as well. Yeah. They design you know, all kinds of stuff like airplanes and boats and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, they had a whole bunch of designers that just didn't work on cars. They worked on other things. So I said, part of your research budget, I would like to see what these guys would do about cars. What would you do? But that, that wasn't their, their core focus. And I went out to California to see their work. And there was some interesting stuff. But one of the designers, Fernando was his name, he presented a car which was all based on the sex appeal of uh, fabric. Yeah. Like, you know, how it moves when you get dressed and a girl 
and she's moving to her clothes like this and and here's this car and with this you know it moves underneath its skin and when i come into the come into the garage at night it's it's you know heaving and panting because it wants to go for another drive and, and it lights up its eye. I mean, all these incredible sexy emotional metaphors he's putting into it. And he actually made a car out of like, took like a lady stocking and stretched it over a bunch of coat hanger wire and made this car, right? this little model and called it Gina. And that was um, uh, nothing really spectacularly new for me because cars made out of cloth have been since of the and I mean every other truck on the in Europe has a textile back on it. So the idea of using textiles in vehicles isn't that new or interesting, perhaps. And in fact, when I was in college back in the eighties, uh, Art Center did a project in textile cars. You know, like a car that gets smaller when you're in town and stuff like that, right? Using clothes. okay. So um, having seen that vehicle or that concept idea, uh, I flew to New York afterwards because we had to. Uh, we were looking for a piece of property for a design studio in New York City at the time. And I visited a place called um, uh, Material Connections, which is for designers. It's like a library of materials. And they happened to have in there at that moment a display on the history of textile and architecture. It was very interesting. And I had never really realized all these different ways that people had made textile stadiums and buildings. And here's all the, the, the little attachment nodes they had for that and pictures of this that it was quite quite wow mind expanding to be quite honest and then i got on the airplane and flew home and my reading material for that trip was the uh, briefing book an investment uh, meeting that was coming up a week or so later in which design would have to sign off on the number of stamps in the uh, what's called the prestrasse the the road of stamp to stamp a piece of sheet metal for a car because at the time they were i don't know something like seven steps you know it gets bent a bit and then a bit more and then a bit more etc and every one of those stamps is millions and millions right and they wanted to cut it down to let's say from seven to five. i can't remember and in doing so it would save you know billions right but in at that moment design had the promise never do any shapes that are too complicated for just five steps you get the idea yeah yeah. Okay, so I'm reading this about all the millions go into the stamps to make sheet metal. And I think, wait a minute, I just saw a car that didn't use any stamps. Hmm. And unlike function as the way of selling a textile car like it's smaller and bigger, this thing was entirely being sold to me on the basis of emotion. It's all about its sexiness. Isn't that why we sell cars? I mean, wait a minute, and I just saw an exhibit. Architecture's already been doing this for years. Shit. You know, yeah. what are we missing here, guys? <laughs> so I went back and I talked to people about it with a huge amount of enthusiasm, as you can imagine. And we got together the the ability to make this car, which, by the way, I don't know if I'm telling any stories out of school, but that particular car, the funding for it came from the group inside BMW that is responsible for the sheet metal stamps. How about They're that? Nice because they, fan. yeah, how about that? Because they have to look out for their own future. And so they have to put themselves in question. So they said, okay, we'll see what you can do with textile. And I'll tell you at the end of the day, anything you can do in textile, we can do in sheet metal. I said, okay, let's see. So we did this car, right? And we didn't show it to anybody. But the guys in the sheet metal part of the company looked at it and they said, all right, if you want to make sheet metal without stamps, we have to use some particular robot tools. 
and they made a process called GBK. And if you guys look at the hoods of the MZ4s that made back in those days, first generation Z4, the mm-hmm. M's, you will see two ridges down splines going down the hood of the car that differentiate it from the normal Z4s. Interesting. Right? And those are made those are made with a technology called the GBK, which uses no stamps. It uses a robot to do it. Okay. So basically literally holds the hood that's already been stamped from a normal Z4 in space with no counter stamps. And then in the air, these robots put these two uh, shapes into it. Okay. Yeah. It's it's an incredibly economical way to do that. Right. It's it's a wonderfully economical way to do it, and nobody's ever thought of it. But these guys thought of it because they were inspired by Gina. So uh, the car stayed within BMW, uh, all locked away. Nobody said anything about it. In fact, I don't think anybody heard the name or anything about it until uh, 2008 when we launched it on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. And I will have to say that's in a kind of a side effect. That's a huge all the designers, the engineers, the technicians, also all the students, the interns who were at BMW at the time took their vow of silence very seriously and didn't tell anybody about them. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, that's like Apple. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I really respect everybody who was uh, because of that. So suddenly they, they came up with, I mean, it just showed you that there's so much more to discover about cars than we ever thought if we just get away from some of our ideas. And uh, I started this out by telling you about this 90-10 of our Reds car, which 90 represents the amount of time a car is not moving and the 10 represents when it is, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to conclude that concept by telling you, in the meantime, we have come to understand that 90 refers to the 90% of anything you're talking about that you don't know. You think you know it. But in reality, you don't. And the only way to discover it is to look where you normally don't go. Yeah. Right. So there's a little lesson learned there from our side. <laughs> very, very cool story. I, I knew some of the Gina story, but certainly not, not the full well, extent. Well, you know, Anders Warming, Anders Warming was the designer on the I But know, the original yeah. concept came from Fernando Park. Oh, really? I, I always thought it was Anders, yeah. No, no, no. The original one came from Fernando. Yeah, I actually know Anders quite quite well. Very, very, very talented designer. Yeah, he is. He is. Great guy. But so is Fernando and uh, deserves credit. Gotcha. I didn't know there was. But, uh, was but actually, actually, these guys penned the car, but the solution, uh, the modeling team inside BMW Design, and mm-hmm. they're the guys who really get a high. The mothers, yeah. 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 Got to give them a lot of credit. Yeah. So, Chris, got to ask you a. Uh, Probably one or two more questions, and we'll let you go. We don't want to keep it too long. So uh, this is a, a silly question, but if you were to pick your your favorite child, meaning your favorite BMW design while you were there, which one would it be aside from what we talked about it today? Oh boy, I don't know. You know, I don't think about. You don't you know, think you, about yeah, it? I have a special part in my heart for the for the seven series because you know you always love the child that's the biggest pain in the side, right? The uh, seven series. Uh, yeah, well, that's what. That's not why the Pope loved Michelangelo because it was so problematic. <laughs> but that was that was designed by Adrian, though, right? Uh, the Sistine Chapel. No, the... <laughs> I'm not ah, sure. The guy, got, the guy got around. I missed that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Adrian was Adrian was a key designer. Was but you asked me about cars done under my watch. If you want to ask me about cars that I personally designed, you have to stop. Correct. I, I was I was gonna say under your uh, watch. That's the that's the right question, not 
personally by I, I assumed you meant them. Yeah. By the way, the Coupe Fiat has got some renaissance. I mean, they show up at my door all the time. Yeah. It's really cool. That's really <laughs> kind of cool. You know? Talk about poor man's Ferrari. All right. Yeah. Anyway. My X6 that I drive now is the first Gen X6. Uh, I really like that. If if I could get a, a Roadster, I'd probably get the first Gen Z4 Roadster. Uh, yeah, those are both the, beautiful. Yeah, the M version, I'm sure. Those are really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, even the yeah. first generation and like M6, the, the Shark, I mean, it's just beautiful. Really yeah. is a timeless yeah, design. Yeah, but, you know, the bigger cars, uh, they're nice and everything. But I, I really like those. That gotcha. the X6 so is, but you know what? Do you know what I would say is the, one of the best cars done under my watch? The first gen X3. My really? wife has it. No, it's the first I gen X3. Nobody comes away from that car without saying this is one of the best driving cars I've ever been in. I agree. I mean, yeah. it, it wasn't for the fact that the UI that thing is is uh, the 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 graphic user interface and everything on this car is is so Stone Age. The mm -hmm. car is just a perpetual love affair. It it drives like hell, and there's no better car in the snow. Jeez, I can I can't pry it out of her hand. So anyway, I actually had that too. I had the the thirty the 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 three point so the six cylinder um, with the pre facelift with the uh, uh, oh really black, cool with, with with the black bumper, and it actually got stolen in Chicago. <laughs> but, but I did. I I I do agree with what you said. It was it was a fantastic drive. I love driving that car. It was extremely sporty. It was it was it was lightweight, um, and and truly truly loved that. It was my second or third BMW after an, an E46, and I truly loved the car. Yeah, it's. I mean, and it's amazing how quickly they developed the six platform. Uh, yeah. They had you know they had that car really dialed in, and they'd just gone through this experience of. Of you know outdoing Land Rover with their four-wheel drive technology, you know, yeah. so uh, you know trying to trying to show that the you know, Munich guys can do it better, and yeah. they really came up with a winner. Yeah, totally agree. So, yeah. last question: uh, What kind of projects you're working on today? Not like not like not just cars, because I I know that's on uh, in industrial design for for uh, for Samsung and some other companies, but I don't think it's all well known. No, no, nobody. Does. I mean, when I left, they said, "Don't." Two years, I said, "Okay." So we did everything else here. Yeah. Cognac, cognac bottles and refrigerators and cell phones. Oh, really? And uh, super yachts and yeah, I mean, basically all kinds of good stuff. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. Very enjoyable. Um, I will tell you uh, one of the things that I appreciate most about years with Samsung. We worked with them for about three years on many, many different types of products. Uh, one. Um, uh, a very interesting one that was conceived here in my studio just was launched at CES. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's a very interesting one uh, by them. But, you know, they don't give credit to anybody, so I'm not going to say too much about it. <laughs> but I will say what is interesting about these guys is when they tell you to do something new, like a new product, you know, give us the next one of this so that people want to buy it. You go, okay. But then they also say, and also give us the next business model. Like, mm -hmm. how else can we make money on this? Like, in the future, how will we make money on it? And you think, okay, what's a new business model for a vacuum? I mean, it really makes you think. You know? And uh, I think that, uh, that set of hurdles that that company was smart enough to put in front of their design team really brought us into new mental areas of uh, design thinking that we never would have gone before. 
and uh, did a lot to hone, I think, the capabilities of the studio. So, okay, that's enough about the product side. The other side of what we're doing here, so we, we do car stuff and product stuff, but the other side of what we're doing here is all about uh, animation. Uh, okay. So we're developing a cartoon series. Oh, really? really? That's interesting. Oh, yeah, you didn't know that? I did not know that, no. no. Oh, you did not know that, okay. So <laughs> that is... That is a really big thing. It is also a kind of a spin-off of car design, if I may say so. Okay. Um, because uh, if, if you really understand what car design is, okay, to me, car design is not about putting sheet metal around four wheels. Car design is about putting character and personality into something that you make to the point where people say, hey, that's me. All right. right. Now, that is not the job of graphic designers, architects, product designers, industrial designers. No, that's not the fashion. It's not their job. It's a job of car designers to create a personality and a character. Now, you see why I harp so much when I say all these supercars are the same, because they're missing that to me. They're not, they're not developing a personality. So we said, okay, if that's true for cars, how could we create a cartoon series which offered personality and character, but through the intrinsicness of the object itself? So we're doing one where we don't put eyeballs and hands and clothes and high-heeled shoes on things that are alive. We leave them as they are, which is super challenging. You know, people first look at it and say, nobody will respond to a cartoon character who doesn't have eyeballs. But then when we show them our animation films, they'll go, damn, you're right, it works. So that's kind of cool. And yeah, that's something cool. we're developing here. It's a, it's a really big project we're taking on. And uh, I think something to look forward to from our studio. Yeah, us too. It's kind of swing to the to the Pixar story. I saw a, a documentary recently how Steve Jobs went there, and how Toy Story came came to life, and how they shifted towards that too. Yeah, so I mean, it's something. It's an industry you have have huge respect for. These people do things their way, you know. So okay, you know, you come in from the outside, but nevertheless, we think we have a, a really strong, unique IP, a great story to tell. We just finished um, uh, writing the book. Uh, for this, which um, today went to pre-publisher for a pre-press run, and it has four, 30 pages, I think. Okay. So, um, but it's not for distribution; it's not for sale. Yeah. It's for use by the design team uh, to make the characters and write the story as it goes onto screen. More of a storyline script, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's really cool. But if you come to our studio, you will see the main character. He's right out in front of our key arch. So that's our. Yeah, I should make that. I should make a trip down to you once. I mean, I used to go to Italy two or three times, like every year. I have a lot of friends in uh, Milano and uh, and uh, and Roma, but um, unfortunately, come down. Come down. Can I tell you one last thing, real quick, or do you have no time? Oh, we have we have plenty of time. No, I have to go. But I mean, do you have time for one last thing? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So strangely, you know, I told you at the very beginning of this that I got in, into things which are community based. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I never thought I would be as deeply involved in a nonprofit project as I am with this thing called the Big Bench Community Project. And it's something you, your readers might be interested in because, you know, say, what happens to people, you know, designers when their imagination kind of goes gaga? And uh, also, what happens when they just let a phenomenal So what happened was when I to to Italy with my wife, we made our first winter here a giant park bench to put down in the vineyard underneath our house. And I designed one that looks kind of like a park bench too, but not like any park bench ever did. But it's a bit complicated to make because it's special. It has a lot of personality. And 
at first people wanted to sit on it themselves. It's big. It's two meters 20 tall and three meters 50 long. When you sit on it, you feel like a little kid, you know, feet dangling in the air. It's really cute, okay? Yeah. But, you know, big benches have been around. Other people have done them. But I don't think anybody did one this much, let's say, detail in the design. You know, to make it really special. So we put it out there. And the first year, for us, you know, to look at a sunset, in the first year, many people came and said, can we sit on it? I said, yeah, go ahead. It's right. And then the next year, people said, can we make our own? And I said, here's the plans for free. Go ahead. And after three or four started getting made and there was more interest, we thought maybe we should, you know, get a handle on this. So we, you know, patented the design and copyrighted the logos and everything like this. And we created a nonprofit society, the Big Bench Community Project. And we still give the designs away for free. We just ask you that you follow the rules for making your own bench. And mm -hmm. for the rules is no public money. So none of these benches are made with any uh, public money. They're all done by volunteers or private donations. But we're at 113 now. Oh, okay. Wow. And they span from Scotland all yeah. the way down through Italy and pretty Mount Etna. It's like <laughs> a volcano, okay? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so this phenomenon has no stopping. And... Uh, we give uh, every, we sell some you know some trinkets you know some small things and, and passports that people like to stamp for the bench and raise a bit of money with that and we give the money back to the communities. Uh, this year we'll give back uh, two, over two thousand euros to a community project that has to do with kids and kids and art. Okay, the reason I'm telling you this for people in this area they don't know me as a BMW or a car guy. They know me as the bench guy. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, I'm the bench guy. So we have a we have a saying, and I'll continue. we have a, a slogan in our studio here, which is the studio motto. It comes from a cartoonist named Walt Kelly, and he quoted somebody else. I don't know. And it says, "It's probably okay to be anything you cannot be when you realize you cannot be everything you." And you know, if I think you know, people think I am something. Like I am a designer, or I am this guy who came from BMW, or I am all these things. You know, the reality, none of us are these things that people say you are. And once you get your handle on that, you can be anything. You can even be the bench guy. Yeah. <laughs> so where, where can we go to see that? Uh, well, if you come onto the website, which is uh, benchcommunityproject.org, okay. you'll see a map, and you'll see this, and I'll explain you how to make one, how to do it. And if some of your readers somewhere want to do one, just give us a just give us a, a line on the emails and okay yeah no we'll, we'll definitely mention that that's that's really interesting very very cool. <laughs> that's kind of a bizarre tweet. from Scotland though I mean that's a long way though how about that yeah they made a fantastic one that is a long way yeah that's but it's awesome. really cool it's very, awesome. really cool it's very cool and interesting yeah. Chris I can't thank you enough uh, always very insightful uh, I appreciate the time. I hope to see you maybe as future auto shows, if there will be any. Oh, I'm sure. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, some of the European ones are being canceled next year, too. So, uh, well, why don't, you do a, why don't you plan a rally drive among the benches? When we had, oh, really? when we had 17 of them, imagine oh, this. Yeah. Back when we had only 17 of them, um, yeah. BMW was kind enough to loan me an X6, or, uh, an, uh, a six-series cabrio mm -hmm. for a drive. And I did a one-minute rally all 17 benches in one day with a bunch of co-drivers. We had a lot of fun. It took me 15 hours to connect 17 yeah. benches. Imagine yeah. connecting connecting 113. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a fun trip, that though. Would be a, would be a good rally. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, it would be a lot of fun. That's something to think about. <laughs> exactly.
Okay, guys. Well, thank, thank you so, you so much, much Chris. I wish you good luck with the project, and hopefully we get to see each other soon. Yeah, thank you thank very you much. And uh, hi to your listeners, and uh, I hope this uh, somehow inspired them. Absolutely. I think it was great. Okay. Thank you, All Chris. Right. Take Ciao, care. Ciao.